Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Your Booked, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. Firstly, if you've ever dreamed of sharing your shelves with me and appearing as a guest on this podcast, you can. All you have to do is pre-order my new novel Limelight in hardback from bookshop.org. There's a link in our show notes and there'll be information at the end of the show. Limelight is the story of Frankie, a drifter, a dreamer, a quiet girl who just wants to hang out with her big sister while trying to manage her extra mother, and what happens when her secret hobby is exposed. Frankie's secret hobby is getting naked on the internet. Also, my novel Careering, a romantic comedy about our unrequited passion for work and why it will never love us back, and a BBC Sounds book club pick, is out in paperback on the 9th of March. Over on Instagram, I'm giving away a signed copy and a fabulous prize bundle to the best attempt to recreate Becky Guyatt's fabulous cover art. Tag me at the Daisy Bee and do your best can't even pose. Now on to today's guest. Kevin Wilson told the New York Times, I like to read books that mix tenderness with weirdness and my goodness, his new novel, Now Is Not The Time To Panic, does exactly that. I had such a good time with Kevin. We talked about the self-published memoir of one of the first female basketball pros, Molly Bolin, British indie music, his friendship with Anne Patchett and the link between literature and polio. I'm quite new to Kevin's work, but I've fallen utterly in love with it and I think you will too. Enjoy talking about now is not the time to panic but I do want to rave about it to you too because I loved it and I love Frankie like I haven't loved a heroine for a long time and it's so real that it's such a spectacular overarching grand idea but the interiors are so real and the the vivid excitement and the thrill of it but that's sort of the the dullness of adolescence it's all captured so perfectly and it's so funny and I adored it oh gosh thank you so much that really means a lot I appreciate it um, I think as, well, as a, a British reader that world is still it seems so exotic and glamorous to me and I know that lots of us especially reading the YA we all read it was the American stuff we were desperate for and couldn't get enough of. And obviously now 
we can sort of traverse continents in half a heartbeat. But then finding out about people who just sort of, oh, you can just eat Pop-Tarts for breakfast as a matter of course. And so, and I think I love that detail as well about it going viral before we knew the phrase going viral, how you go viral when people still have that appetite for spreading information, spreading misinformation before it was as easy as it is now. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing um, because I'm writing this story in 1990, you know, set in 1996. I mean, things still found their way right to other people. Things could expand and move beyond those those initial boundaries. Um, obviously, like computers make it way easier, you know. But but I, I I did you know as a kid living in this rural South where it felt like I had access to nothing you know, strange things found their way to me. And so, yeah, I wanted to write a little bit about maybe you couldn't control how it got to you, but things did get to you. I love this detail that Frankie talks about how you just send some cash off in an envelope to get a punk record that sounded exciting and have no idea what it was or who it was. I'm wondering if there are any books that reached you in a similar way. Yeah, so there's a couple. I mean, if I go all the way back to when I was a little kid, Reading for me was this really important, necessary thing, but it wasn't always about the book itself. It was that um, even as a small child, I had like really intense anxiety and like looping weird thoughts. And so my brain, I felt like not always safe in the world. And reading books was this way that I could place my consciousness inside this world that was already created. And that was even at a very young age, like it felt like a godsend. And uh, my parents were super cool about this, but like even at dinner meals were hard for me because I would have weird thoughts and I couldn't eat. And so my parents would let me read all through our meals, right? So I would read like Archie comics or all these Disney books. And that from a very young age, what I thought of books to be was a place for me to feel safe inside a world, even if there was difficult stuff in the text. Um, So yeah, those, you know, those initial books were big, but I think the first time I really felt like, oh, this book speaks to me, um, is this book called The Yearling by Marjorie Canan Rawlings. And I was reading books from the library, but they were all like teenagers in New York City or big cities, you know, or they were hiding out in the Metropolitan Museum or they were in London, England. And The Yearling is set in the swamps of Florida uh, in a pretty poor rural family. And it was maybe the first book where I thought, oh, this is a landscape that I recognize. Like, these are people who sound kind of like how I talk. And that was the first time where I thought, oh, writing a, a story isn't about maybe a fantastical world, but actually representing the place in which you grew up. So yeah, that was huge. I think it's enormous, isn't it? When when you see yourself, the thrill of finding worlds that are nothing like what you know and finding the three books, but also as a child, when you think, oh, my life is significant enough to be printed on a page. It's a story. It's as valid a story as the big stories I've read. Yeah, that's, I mean, really and truly, I think you're right. It's that you can read to find worlds beyond your own, and then you can read to find worlds that look like yours. 
And and sometimes the same book can do that. So yeah, I, I love that aspect. I wanted to talk to you about a book. I've read um, an interview that you did with the New York Times and you mentioned about what you're reading to your kids. And I thought, oh, I've never read this and I long for it. This sounds brilliant. I don't know anything about this woman and she sounds incredible. The Legend of Molly Bolin. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so my youngest son, who's 10, loves basketball and and I love basketball. But, you know, there's not a ton of literature, you know, about basketball or about sports even. But um, uh, one day I was at a used bookstore and I always will go to the sports section and look through it. And I found this kind of self-published biography of this woman, Molly Bolin, who was the first woman to sign a professional basketball contract in America with the Women's Basketball League. And I thought, oh, this sounds awesome. Let's read it. And... My son and I, uh, you know, read it together, and it's about this woman who played basketball in Iowa, who grew up in this kind of tiny rural town, uh, and then just through sheer force of will, like, succeeded and was like an incredible player. Like, like what, what people think of as Steph Curry, that's kind of what her abilities were like. And it's really interesting, this was this failed basketball league, the Women's Basketball League, and she was the only at the time, the only uh, player who had a kid and uh, was a mom. And I really love that of her writing about all these different identities that she could hold inside of herself. And yeah, it was really transformative. And and both my my son and I have now have a huge crush on Molly (laughs) Bolin. And we wrote to her to tell her that we loved the book. And she sent Patch an autographed photo. And it was just, again, like books open up those worlds that you didn't know existed. You know, all these people with these amazing lives that you can kind of find your way into. I love secondhand books because I think they take away a lot of boundaries and barriers. You can afford to take a chance on anything that's mildly intriguing. (laughs) I think that's right. And like growing up where I grew up, it's not like I could walk into a bookstore and find the latest release or know what was popular um, so a lot of times what I ended up getting my hands on was stuff that nobody else had ever heard of. And and then to me, it became like one of the most formative things of my life. So yeah, I love those moments. Can you remember any other amazing sort of secondhand discoverers or obscure things or books that maybe you were the only person reading then? So I, I will say this, like um, I grew up in Winchester, Tennessee, and, and uh, it's the same county where I live now. Um, and I went to this very small um, uh, Catholic school, and uh, the like. The grades were the 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 nun would teach uh, multiple grades in the same room, so she would teach us and then turn around and teach the other grade while we did work. It was just so small, and because I could get my work done so quickly, um, I would do chores like I would mop and sweep in the hallways or help fixed computers, but they would let me go to our library, which was a trailer in the backyard, uh, this unair conditioned trailer, and they would let me just read when I was finished with my work. And it was such an underfunded little school library. And it was so strange because none of the books were books that anybody else was reading. And for some reason, because it was like books from the 50s, there were so many books about kids with polio. <laughs> and so, oh, wow. yeah, like it was like, I was like in the 1990s, I was reading this like a book called Screwball about a boy with polio who makes like a a, a, a matchbox derby car to race. And 
And so it was this interesting world where I was reading books from like a time period way in the past beyond my own experiences. And none of the books, any, every time I looked them up, I'm like, I don't know if anyone else has read any of these books, but my little library, you know, I couldn't choose like, here are all the Newbery Award winners or here are all the classic, like I never read Narnia as a kid. All those books, they weren't around. Instead, I read these strange little texts. And I do think that kind of formed my worldview in some ways. I think it must do. And a lot of the books, the, the big books that we hear about for children, they're really rooted in the, the fantastical and there's lots of magic. And I suppose Narnia is the classic example. But I think children do have a craving to read about the, the domestic and not necessarily, you know, their lives and times, but about real believable people and other sort of children who are not so far removed from their own lives. I know my, my oldest son, Griff, um, one of the things that we tended to read kids' books were um, he always really loved to read, like, uh, The Babysitter's Club, uh, which are all... Oh, really? Well, they're all, you know, they're all female main characters, but whenever we would go to, a, you know, a modern bookstore and we'd ask for books that have male, you know, boy main characters, they were always adventure narratives or like they find their way to become, and Griff was not interested in that. I think what he wanted was, this is a weird world that I'm living in and I'm unsure of myself. And I'd love to just read stories about kids like trying to navigate the real world. And so the Babysitter's Club is like one of the best series for that, you know? You can, you can feel connected to it. So yeah, he always gravitated towards the real instead of the fantastical. When I said about exotic American YA and how glamorous it seemed, I was thinking of Stony Brook, of course, because I binged those books and I loved them. And I think, I don't know if this is right, because these numbers sound big, but I think I was allowed to get... 20 books out on the library card which oh seemed gosh. like a lot maybe it was 10 but the rule was my parents half the books can be babysitters club books and the <laughs> other half have to be a different kind of book oh i love that that makes me and i love those books as in as a junior high and teenager i was probably reading them when i was older than i should have been but those were what were in the library you know that i could find and yeah my, my son and both of my sons uh, those books are so huge for us. And we love, you know, that there's so many different characters in those books that you can feel a connection to different aspects of them. Like whether you like Christy or whether you like Marianne, I think we all are, my kids and I are, are big Marianne fans because <laughs> she's so uh, nervous and shy. And Claudia with the artistic stuff. It's really lovely. Uh, oh, and um, Mimi, her grandmother. Yes, I love yes. Mimi. Um, but I think Marianne's so interesting because she is the she's the quiet one, but she's the one with the boyfriend. Yes, yes. And I think she's super quiet and she's nervous, but there's a lot of like interiority in her life that's super complicated. And I always kind of love that about her. Yeah. Of course, because she's, you know, dealing with sort of grief very young. She's got the dead mum and the, the distant dad. He's probably a really nice I was a bit scared of Marianne's dad. I was, um, I loved Stacey because my one ambition, I think, was to go to New York. And I remember that she had these jeans that had like pink plastic zippers in. And I think I even, um, I thought that the diabetes seemed quite glamorous. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, maybe people now think some of that stuff is silly. But for like me and my boys, like growing up, 
those problems may seem small in some ways, but they're actually really huge, especially for children. And I think my children felt really safe reading those books in some ways that there would be these problems, but by the strength of connecting to these other people, if you could hold on to these other people who knew you and loved you, you could find your way through the difficulties. And I don't know, that's like maybe one of the most meaningful lessons that books can teach us. I think you're right. I think that, you know, you can't really ask for a lot more than that from a book or a series of books. Yeah. I was wondering whether there were any books you kind of, you heard about and you were desperate to read that sort of they lived in your imagination for a long time as titles and you really had to to track them down or do some work to get hold of them. I think so. A couple of them. One is um, because when I was like in junior high, there was a movie that David Cronenberg made called Naked Lunch, which was about the the writer William Burroughs. And obviously, like being like 13 and hearing the words naked and lunch, I was like, oh, I wouldn't mind reading that. That sounds fascinating. And I remember... No favorite <laughs> Simpsons jokes. Yes. Nelson Muntz coming out of the movie theater going, I can think of two, <laughs> two things, things wrong, wrong with that, that title. title. <laughs> but I, I wanted it. You know, I wanted to read it. I'd read some magazine articles about the movie... And I finally, my mom drove me to to Nashville, which is the closest city, and I got it. And I remember reading it and being so unbelievably confused by it that I, I mean, it was transformative in that I got to read a book that felt so far beyond me that I couldn't understand it. But yeah, it was also disappointing <laughs> in some ways. And there was another book at the at our county library because I would just walk up and down the aisles. My mom and dad did not prevent me from reading anything. Anything that I picked out, they would let me read. And I was just walking through the adult fiction titles and I saw John Cheever's The Falconer. And uh, I said, ooh, The Falconer, that sounds interesting. And I read it and, you know, it's it's a kind of complicated narrative about a man who is goes to prison and, and enters into a homosexual relationship with one of the inmates. And I remember, again, like, Whenever I would pick out a book, it wasn't like there was uh, uh, the internet to tell you, like, here's what the book is about. Here's what we recommend. Every time I opened a book, I had no idea what I was kind of going to encounter. And and I kind of loved that. I I loved opening books cold and not knowing anything about them or what I was going to get. I've not read The Falconer, and now I'm really interested. I've sort of heard about it in a kind of, you know, because it's... John Cheever and it's sort of since you know adult and sophisticated and mature do you still go cold when you can I know to a point it's impossible to avoid the information about books and around books before you read it but is there anything that you've read lately that you've sort of been able to plunge into while only knowing the title so I feel like it's hard for me now because I read so much for other authors blurbs you know I get the book before it comes out so I have some sense of what it's going to be but I almost never read reviews of books, and I try not to even really know too much about the plot, especially if it's an author that I love. Like, if there's an author and I've read their previous books and I really like them, I tend not to try to read too much about what it's going to be. Um, I, I love that that idea of just, like, I trust this author, I love their work, I'm going to go into it cold and see what happens. But but it's harder and harder to do that, I think. I know you've mentioned being a reader of Anne Patchett, who I adore, who doesn't, but I feel very strongly that way with her, that I don't need to know. And there can maybe be a plot line, a little bit like, to be honest, with State of Wonder. I kind of thought, 
knowing what it's about, like, this doesn't sound like something I gravitate to. Oh, no, it's Anne Patchett. I trust her totally. I'm in. That's awesome. I really love that. Yeah, Anne is, you know, one of my closest friends and, like, one of my favorite writers. You know, she was my favorite writer, one of my favorite writers before I ever (gasps) met her. And State of Wonder, in some ways, of her books is the one I I thought I would be the least connected to in some ways, Um, partly because of the exotic location Although Bel Canto too, but State of Wonder is one of her novels that I go back to again and again. Uh, it like so many moments in that book return to me in my mind in ways that I hadn't expected. It feels like novels within novels and rooms within rooms, and I think of the weird, you know, the couple like are they in Panama, but there's a sort of something a bit shady about them, and they're withholding information. She's trying to befriend them, and I feel. I don't feel short change, but I also feel like if she wanted to go and push that door open and tell more of their story, I would be all in. Is that the the rich couple that's staying in the or the the couple that's staying yeah. in the apartment? Yeah, yeah. And she's with like this kind of guide, and they're the two adults kind of on the beach watching mm. them. Yeah, I, I again like her novels taught me so much about storytelling with these like a large group of disparate people of different experiences are kind of forced into circumstances where they're intimate. You know, they have to be around each other and what can come out of that. I feel like I do that all the time because of her books. Are you, I mean, my geography's awful, close enough to Parnassus to go regularly and, and shop there? Yeah, that's our, that is our local bookstore. It's an hour and a half away, but that's where we shop. Um, and it's like, one of the most joyous things is, you know, we we take the kids and my wife and I and we go in and we know we're, you know, we've been waiting. It's not like we can go all the time. So when we go, we, we load up. Um, but yeah, it's such a beautiful, brilliant place. Amazing. And what is, um, do they, I'm sure that everyone who works there must be phenomenal at recommending things. Are there any Parnassus books that have been recommended to you? Or well, just generally, what was the last great book you got when you were in there? So Anne always recommends books to me. And, and books, oftentimes she goes back, like she'll she'll say like, have you not read this William Maxwell book? And I'm like, no, I have never read it. And she'll give that to me and say, you got to buy this. But what's been huge with my sons as they grow up is, you know, I, I obviously since I read all those books about kids with polio in the 50s and they're out of print, what I read now uh, when I go is we ask the the booksellers for recommendations for YA. And, and it's so great. Like every time they recommend something, it's a book that my kids love. And that's the thing that you get from bookstores, right? Is that they, they get a sense of what do you like Here's something else that will resonate. I do not read nearly enough YA, but that must be an area that's always getting bigger and brighter and more vibrant. And there are so many sort of stories that that serve, especially, I'm not, you know, far better than I do as as a parent, but I wonder whether that the scope of, I suppose, middle grade fiction is a little narrower and a little more conservative and YA can be broader and wilder. Yeah, (laughs) like YA now... um the boundaries of it stretch so far in ways where it's hard for me to tell the barrier between adult fiction and YA, honestly. Uh, I feel like there's, it's just so permeable now. Um, but also just like the kind of topics that they cover and the kind of methods of storytelling. Like, I, I wish I had those books when I was their age. Not a drop of polio in the house. No, none. Nobody, nobody has polio in these books. Are there any... YA authors you've discovered recently? Do you read these uh, books kind of alongside your kids or do you 
let them get on with it. Is, is there anything that they've brought home that you're like, oh, actually, that sounds really great. I want to read it when you're done. Yeah. So, I mean, my kids are, they, because they go to their own school libraries and bring stuff home. And then I always have a book that I'm reading with them. Um, so right now my youngest and I are reading finally Percy Jackson, which, which you know, is such a huge uh series but we'd never read it before so we're reading that but then he'll come to me and he's like here's this weird YA science fiction book called Bloom and it's about these weird seeds that fall from the sky and I'm like oh well this is exactly the kind of stuff that I'd love to read and my son Griff now really does start to gravitate towards fantastical narratives which I don't read as much YA that's fantastical so he'll come to me with that so yeah I mean I, I think the the I'll just say like these are kind of more middle grade but the the two books off the two authors that really my kids open me up to one is Tom Engelberger who writes this series called the Origami Yoda series it's middle grade and it sounds so silly and cheesy and it's got a lot of Star Wars stuff in it but like those books make me cry every time I read them and I've read them twice to my kids and then Jennifer Holm is this writer who's who's written a, a wide range of books and they're just so beautiful and heartfelt and meaningful um that like i do feel like in some ways the transformative effect of those books hit me harder than they might have even hit my children uh and i'm really grateful for those moments when i can read it right alongside them i do think it's interesting when we are ready for different books and how the way we connect with a book based on kind of the life experience we've had and reading Victorian literature instead of books for school when I was younger and there'd be, you know, death and deprivation and you think, <laughs> oh, you know, that's really sad. The past was really sad. And I've just read Bleak House for the very first oh my time. God. I'm 37 years old. I know. Um, it's my father's favourite book. And every time it came up, I felt a bit guilty. But also, why would I want to read about a Bleak House <laughs> is my gut feeling. But on I went. And it's just desperate. And I know, like... Dickens was this chronicler of social realism. Did you know? And I'm like, yes, I know that's the thing that he he always does. But the what he was describing and the way people were living, I sort of it felt visceral in a way that it didn't when I was a glib, obnoxious teenager who just thought the past was sad. I, you know, that resonates so much with me, Daisy. Like, I think there are times where people have told me these are these great works of literature, but I read them or I tried to read them at an age when I probably just couldn't really fully fathom what was going on in them. And so sometimes I think I need to be way older uh, in order to fully appreciate some of those classics, you know, and that's what I found that when I go back to a book, I was like, oh, this wasn't, I remember hating this or it was a slog. When I read it with with kind of a, a, a larger perspective, um, and maybe a, a larger historical perspective too, and also knowing like a greater sense of what contemporary literature is like, I go back and read those books and I'm like, oh, they were doing this stuff way before these contemporary writers. Like all this weird stuff that I think is so postmodern, it's it's embedded in all these classic texts and I just didn't recognize it. I think it's really brave and quite vulnerable to go back to a book that you remember struggling with and not enjoying and thinking, I will try again. Um, I'd love to hear about any books in particular that you sort of preferred or, you know, found more from second time around. Well, I think this is the huge one, which is because um, I've I've now read it three times, but it's The Great Gatsby. And, and part of it is because everyone says, like, this is the great American novel, right? In a lot of ways. 
And I read it in high school and I was like, I don't understand a single thing. It just seems so not boring, but like, I just couldn't understand the, the like subtext and like all the complications of class and all these weird relationships. And it just, it just, I was just like, God, this, I really just did not like it. But you know, enough people tell you how formative that book is for them. And I went back and, and reread it. And when I read it the second time, there was just so much more that I could kind of recognize in the text and it opened up and then I read it a third time and I was like, this really is, you know, brilliant. And that's a book I wouldn't have returned to if I didn't have 15 people telling me it's the greatest American novel ever written. So it reminds me not to kind of fully fixate on my initial impression of a text. I do think that, you know, when we're young and hopeful and pure of heart, it's really hard to fathom anyone's motivations in a Fitzgerald novel the sort of the venality of it we just don't don't get it and we we're looking for wins and there are <laughs> no wins ever <laughs> that's the thing too like the big formative southern writer that everyone talks about you know who won the Nobel Prize is William Faulkner and I tried to read William Faulkner in college and the the language and the the god just it was impenetrable to me. And it's still a writer that as much as I recognize like his brilliance, it wasn't until I reread them much later that I started to think like, okay, all right, I get it. I can see where this is coming from. But I think my growth as an artist and my growth as a reader in some ways is uh, predicated on a lot of the like formative texts I didn't enjoy or like or understand and so I had to find other things that were meaningful to me. And so as a as a writer and as a reader, I, I maybe have stranger like tastes or, or or things that I look to. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We'll be back with Kevin soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. I've chosen Walking Through Clear Water in a Pool Painted Black, the collected stories of Cookie Mueller. If you love tales of trash, terror and tenderness, this is the book for you. It was the book for me. Among other things, there's an incredible essay recounting the time when Cookie and Divine stole and replaced a Christmas tree. If that doesn't make you want to read it immediately, we can never be friends. Also, it will definitely make you want to go back and listen to our John Waters episode. Walking Through Clear Water in a Pool Painted Black is published by Canongate and out now. Now, back to Kevin. Are there any novels that you've not mentioned that do feel hugely formative for you as an author? That was there, I'm sure it was a, a building and a gathering and all the books, but was there any book especially that really made you think, this is what I want to do, this is what I want to create? So I know he's maybe not like in style anymore, but but J.D. Salinger, Catcher in the Rye, which I just reread a couple months ago with my oldest son, and and I and I and I loved it. I hadn't read it since college. Three of his books, Franny and Zoe, Catcher in the Rye, and Nine Stories, which are all very different, right? Like it was a, maybe one of the first collections of stories I ever read with Nine Stories. Franny and Zoe about sibling and familial relationships. Catcher in the Rye about this kind of uh, sarcastic but also deeply wounded teenage voice. All three of those books, when I read them, I was like, oh, this is meaningful to me. This is important. I really love these. I'd love to write something like this in my own specific way. You couldn't get more different than me in the South and those characters in, in you know, in the Northeast. But but those books really did mean something to me. And we're, we're for the first time, I felt kind of excited about literature as, as a writer. I do think there's something thrilling, especially, you know, Holden Caulfield being the the guy everyone knows, the way he's Charlie Brown. I've, even that, even though those books are in the canon and, you know, old and rightly venerated, it still seems sort of fresh and new to be, to capture the weariness of adolescence and to, it's a trusted voice, isn't it? When you're a teenager and everyone is telling you what your life is like and it doesn't ring true at all. And then, you know, this guy gets it. I think that that feeling will never stop being thrilling. And I, it's a bit like, um, I don't know if you know, Adrian Mole, which is sort of a big yes. British, the fake diarist. The diaries, yes. Oh my God. And I'll just say like, in college or, or even in high school, like for some reason, just the weirdness of me um, in our country, like grunge music, like Nirvana and Pearl Jam was like hugely popular. Like that's what everyone listened to. And for some reason that music did not resonate with me. And I got really into British pop music. Uh, and so I was listening to like the Boo Radleys and the Lightning Seeds and all these bands. And I was having to like spend money to get import CDs and because of those, I started to read some of those British popular authors. So the Adrian Mole Diaries, Sue Townsend, is that right? Is that? Yeah. Yes. So I love them so much. And then Nick Hornby. You know, when I read High Fidelity um, 
again, it was like, oh, this is a kind of conversational voice. There's like something really lovely about it. It's deeply literary, but it can also feel popular. Like it can feel contemporary. So in a lot of ways, like this weird me growing up in this tiny town in the deep South in America, there was something about reading these kind of British books that I could feel the connections, even as I recognized that they were separate from me. And I would love to know, and I think it's a question that's really hard to answer. I have such a visceral sense of a London I didn't know as a British teenager when I read High Fidelity, and I felt the kind of the grimy glamour of it. And I knew, I knew what that record shop smelt like. And I knew what his flat was like. And I knew what his girlfriend's office was like. And, you know, she sort of worked as a lawyer and kind of the, how you compose that. And I'm sure you absolutely had that too. Because it was, you know, in your imagination for sure. But the, the differences that those separate cities that we have made up that are both as fully fleshed and dimensional as each other, but the kind of the, the a bit like the, you know, how I imagine, you know, Stony Brook or even now, I will read anything that's set after about 1950 in California yeah. or Los Angeles. <laughs> and what I'm, I've been to LA four or five times and I've been to like a tiny, tiny fraction of it and I've got next to nothing to kind of base that on, but I've still got a version and you will have a version that's so much more real because you know these spaces so much. But that like all these, these infinite cities that we're all imagining... I think it was, you know, reading those British books and Nick Hornby and all those also was like one it as being a southern boy and uh, which is so regional, like state to state, the dialect, the accents are very different, the the food that we eat is very different even though everyone might think of the south as a singular place. That was also really cool for me with no understanding of like northern england and the accent uh you know or um like what manchester was compared to london like it was fun to read these books and 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 get a sense of regionality uh in a country i'd never visited and it made it again it was that way i could find my way into these texts and feel connected to them oh gosh because manchester as a concept through books and the way it's sort of referred to have you, have you been to Manchester in the UK? No, never. I don't know if it would thrill you or disappoint you. <laughs> it was, yeah, and I would read, like, I would go to Tower Records and get, like, Melody Maker and all these, like, British music magazines. And the way, how casually, because obviously those were magazines written for people who lived in England, but the casual way they talked about landscape and region and place and where the different bands were from was just like a, a code I was trying to like figure out. And I love that, you know, reading again, I love trying to like figure out the code of what the author's trying to tell me. I think that's the greatest thing that reading does. And you can get it from Dickens or you can get it from <laughs> a 90s copy of Melody Maker that you infer and so much can be worked out from a context and we don't need you know the exposition we don't need these things explaining to us we can just take a little bit and run with it gosh because I one of my a book I loved so much and I still have a copy of it's a very 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 pulpy secondhand unauthorized biography Courtney Love Queen of Noise oh my god <laughs> about her like when 
Courtney Love, you know, going to London and sort of hanging out with Everett True. And I think this is one of those, I will caveat this on the podcast recording by saying, legally, I cannot um, vouch for any of these details and I could be mistaken. My memory, which may be incorrect, is that Judy and Cope took out an advert in Melody Maker warning people about her. Oh my gosh. Before whole, before everything, saying she's trouble. Oh my gosh. That's incredible. Also, I think that the books and music that that book switched me on to and the trails you go on when you meet these people and imagine these worlds and the other things that sort of that spark your interest oh i don't i'm sure it's out in the u.s if you like 90s british pop you might really enjoy this i don't know if you know the band lush oh yeah yeah of course mickey berenie from lush has just written a memoir called fingers crossed and it's amazing she's before she was a pop star she had the most extraordinary life and her father was a descendant of hungarian aristocrats and the mother was a descendant of Japanese aristocrats and they lived in sort of squalor and glamour and her father was in a sort of genteel poverty but more poverty than genteel and then her mother was in Hollywood acting and it's just a ride. Oh I had no idea I had one I think I had what was it maybe Love Life I I had one of their albums and I really I really loved it I really loved the sound of it so I I am going to check that out. It's much easier to. I know that's the thing now. now. It? Yeah, it's so much easier. Do you read much nonfiction? Are there any memoirs that you love? I read almost no nonfiction. Um, partly because there's so much fiction that I want to read, and it's where I'm most comfortable is in those kind of fictional worlds. I tend to read more nonfiction um, in its hyper-specific, right? So, like, I read lot. The only nonfiction I really read is about topics that I'm interested in. So it would be basketball and professional wrestling. And so, like, that's it. Uh, and otherwise, I don't read much beyond that. As a book you mentioned in this profile, the last great book you read just a little while ago, but I remember thinking, this sounds amazing. Um, Aaron Birch's Year of the Buffalo. It blends the elements of professional wrestling, 90s music, and sibling tension. I thought, yes, please. Yes. That great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, th- those those moments where you're like, oh, this book feels like it was written for me. Like, here are all my obsessions in one book. And yeah, that one, that one was just so lovely and wonderful. Is it a novel? It is a novel. Yeah, it's a very short novel, Year of the Buffalo by Aaron Birch. And, and it's nice because, like, it, professional wrestling is in it, but it's almost like that was his past. And so echoes of it reverberate into the present. And so I kind of love that. It's not a book about professional wrestling. It's a book about like experience and how it shapes us. And yeah, I I just, I I love his work and I thought it was a really lovely novel. I am very excited about reading that. I'm going to track that down. But for some reason that, because I remember kind of the 90s and... I want to say WWF, which there was a confusion about like whether you went to the World Wildlife Fund <laughs> or the wrestling. The celebrity of it and the stories of it and the, the way those narratives were constructed and sort of, you know, we believed it so much. And that being, I think, such a sort of a really like visceral part of a an 80s, 90s childhood, I guess. Yeah, I, I feel like... Sort of being such a, a forgotten part of pop culture. Your, your, your listeners are going to be so weirded out, like how far we're jumping <laughs> like, around. But have talked about wrestling before. But I love, I mean, as a kid, one of the things I loved about wrestling is that everyone's like, well, you know, it's fake. And I was like, well, I mean, it's scripted. And that's what I kind of loved. And that's what I love about fiction is that fiction says, this is invented. This is the mind of the author. But if I do it right... I'll make you invest in it emotionally as if it were real. And to me, that's 
some ways more exciting than reality is to feel a connection to a thing that's been wholly created out of thin air. I'm laughing because um, I've gone off on a tangent and you're the one who's brought me back on track. It's like, this is a books podcast. We're mm. going to talk about books. <laughs> but no, I think you're absolutely right. And that what you were saying about the feelings of anxiety and how books made you feel safer, that we can have all of these feelings, that life is so, so, so chaotic and unpredictable and there's still room to to read in a creative way and kind of you know invest and embroider all your feelings and explore feelings as well what are the books other than the babysitter's club of course um (laughs) that you think have taught you the most about those those complicated emotions in life that have brought you comfort complex comfort when you've needed it oh man that's a great question i think uh, it's weird, but th- so there's a writer, an American writer named Shirley Jackson, who's 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 most famous for her short story, The Lottery. Um, but she has a novel called We Have Always Lived in the Castle about a, a young woman who lives with her sister and her uncle in this estate. Uh, they're kind of never leave the place. Uh, the rest of the family was poisoned. Nobody knows by whom. And my wife says this a lot. I'm interested a lot of times in books that um, the endings are sad, like they're difficult and maybe a little dark. And my wife is always like, you think those are happy endings, you know? But sometimes what I love about books is that I watch the character, even in their darkness or even in their difficulties, try to bend and twist the world to fit them, to let them live in it and exist in it. And that was a book for me that even though it's really dark and ultimately a pretty sad ending, it still resonated with me in a way where I was like, okay, I feel like the character got the thing that they wanted, whether or not it's good or bad. And there's just a lot of texts and movies and stuff where I tend to, even if the ending is sad, that the that the character gets there on their own terms is kind of lovely for me to watch happen. Uh, so that that was huge. And Then the other book that I go to again and again as a kind of book about easing my anxiety of being alive in the world that we live in is Jennifer Egan's A Visit from the Goon Squad. And it's a a nonlinear link collection of stories where characters will recur. You know, they're a minor character in one. But it's very much a book about the passage of time. Like, how did I get from point A to point B? Like, why is my life the way that it is? And what happens when I look back to try to pinpoint the moment that everything changed? And it's a book really about getting older and what happens as time rushes by. And as someone who's getting older and who has children, that's that's anxiety-inducing. And Egan, in so many ways, is like, it should be anxiety-inducing. It should be a little terrifying. But you should also know that like it feels like everything is ending, but it hasn't yet. And that's the huge thing that Egan's book kind of gave me is like, you can feel the dimming of the life that you've created, but the dimming is not the end. And there's so much that you can reinvent and there's so much that you can make and there's so much that you can repair. And as far as a book goes, like that, that's one of the most transformative books I've ever read. I think I've read that that's a book that comes up when you teach and thought those are classes I would love to be in. Um, I've only read it once but I really 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 want to go back to it and return to it and again I think I read it in my 20s and I wonder whether next it must have been about 10 years or more I bet there's so much that I missed and I do that's it's kind of a be a bloodletting or it to acknowledge the worst and yet be hopeful the worst can happen and it will and here it is happening 
I reread uh, We've Always Lived in the Castle in lockdown. Oh, goodness. Which felt yeah. really weird because it was a time when we, we felt like we needed to be huddled together and we didn't trust the inside and the outside. And we wanted this sort of, you know, a barrier between us and everything. But, it, you know, a, a book about craving safety, I guess, and making things safe as only you know how. Yeah, I taught that book. Uh, we have always lived in the castle during the pandemic on a class I taught on the constraint of fiction. And what I was trying to figure out is like, what what does that book mean where some of the characters cannot live the, leave the house? What does it mean that some characters don't want anyone to ever come inside of it or to invade or intrude upon it? And they'll put up these magic totems to keep people out. And ultimately, what does it mean when you make that space smaller and smaller and smaller? Um, again, like, it's terrifying, but there's something for me like that it helps my brain to work my way through those things. I think that makes so much sense. I think partly as well to know that other writers at other times, I'm assuming, have been motivated by a similar anxiety. I don't really know much at all about Shirley Jackson, and I wish that they're making like a, a biopic of her. I think they did. I think it was slightly fictional. She had an unbelievably interesting life and she, because she was a mother to multiple children and she wrote a lot of essays in this kind of breezy mother voice, you know, they were humorous essays about raising a family. I mean, that's what is so interesting to me about her is that she could contain like such intense darkness and yet also contain like the mundane nature of being a mom. That resonates with me as as a parent that you could hold all these various elements. But she was also, in later stages of her life, incredibly agoraphobic and, and, and wouldn't leave the house. And and so in many ways, like, I feel some sort of kinship and connection to her, not just her work, but to her identity in ways that are really interesting. Have you read much Laurie Colwyn? I fell in love with her in the pandemic, and I was reading her no. a lot. Um, she's sort I suppose, perhaps... Uh, She's compared a lot with Nora Ephron and there's there's a breeziness there but also a darkness that I don't think gets talked about and there. I think her most famous book is probably Happy All the Time. She was known for her food writing and wrote books called Home Cooking and More Home Cooking, which is very I think Nigella Lawson is very, very Oh, this is how book. I know her through that. Yes, okay. But her novels are about this kind of small worlds and privileged worlds and people who seem to be very confident and breezy and don't question too much and what it's like to live among those people and see the the slivers of darkness getting in and kind of how to come to terms with them almost alone because a lot of the people around you are just like no it's fine oh man I feel like I know what I'm gonna be reading now at the start of the year is I'm gonna go through her work I can't wait she's one of my favorite new to me writers of recent times and I really wanted to ask you because you mentioned about sort of reading friends novels and blurbing which I think is you know the joy and pain of being an author a joy because it's a treat to write and have friends who write but the pain being it's a um it is the the homework assignment I will never finish um what is there anything that's coming up or recent that you're really excited about that you'd love to to get us all reading oh well so one that I'm I'm super excited about and it's coming out this year is um it's called it's a it's a difficult to remember but it's called the sham shine blind by uh, a writer named Paz Pardo and I'll just kind of tell you like 
the reason I'm so excited about it is that I really love works that kind of blend genre that are like a lot of things in one. And this is what they've posited as, as a blend of noir detective story and science fiction. Uh, they compare it to Michael Chabon and Emily St. John Mandel. But it's it's about a world where basically um, emotions have been weaponized, like that there is these chemicals that can produce almost any human emotion upon contact. And so there's this kind of um, alternative history of the world based on this. But there's this really great character in it who's the way it's presented to is a Latinx Sam Spade, this detective in this kind of funny brooding voice. And again, it's just unlike anything I've ever read. Uh, and those are the books that always resonate for me where I'm like, I can see all these things that I love in it, but I've never seen it in this way. I've never seen the pieces fit together in this way. Um, and then the other one, which is not is new to me, but probably not to other readers that I'm interested to read is Amanda Laurie, who's an Australian writer. It's called The Labyrinth. And it's about a woman whose uh, son is in prison uh, for, for manslaughter. And she moves to this small coastal town and is trying to recreate an actual labyrinth that she remembers from childhood. Uh, she wants to build it in this isolated space. And it's a book about, from what I've been told, that is why I was told I should read it, is that it's about family, it's about memory and nostalgia, and it's about like the power of art to both harm and, and revive. And I was like, oh, this is a book custom made for me. So I'm really excited to read it. They both sound brilliant, totally, totally different and absolutely compelling. And I'm not the biggest sci-fi fan, but this idea of emotions as weapons, it's so chilling and so brilliant. And... And also, if I'm completely honest, like a book called Labyrinth, I would have thought of Labyrinth and David Bowie. And I'm a big <laughs> Bowie fan. But I was like, oh, maybe that's not. But yes, this idea that it's about family and memory. Yes, please. Yes, I'm excited. Kevin, I'm having such a lovely time. And I could talk to you all day, but I know you're very busy and you've got <laughs> things to do. Um, so I'd like to finish by asking about um, any books on your pile, books that you're about to start that you're excited about or intrigued by well oh, so i can i can mention one that i i am um really excited to kind of dig into is it's by a writer named will leach and he is known mostly in america as a sports writer he writes a lot about baseball and this is his second novel it's called the time has come and it's it's again it's it's all set in this town in the south athens georgia and it's every chapter has a different character. And all of these characters are going to converge upon this one space, this pharmacy in town where this big thing is going to happen. And all these disparate people will be bound together uh, in this moment. And again, like Ann Patchett, you know, uh, Bel Canto, like where a group of disparate people find themselves kind of trapped in a space where they have to rely on each other. And they might even also be the source of the, the violence or the terror. That's a, that's a, Again, as someone who like is interested in constraint and small spaces, those are books I gravitate towards. And so I'm really excited about this one um, because it has elements of like region, the deep south, multiple character perspectives, a constrained narrative. I'm really excited to, to check it out. Oh, that sounds really intriguing and written by someone who understands about the power of sports and the power of crowds and how 
a huge group of people can be connected and held by by one emotion and that sort of you know the power of a group oh i really love that yeah it's 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 he's he's a great writer so i'm excited cool well that's awesome because there are three books i might not have found that i will definitely be looking out for and reading kevin it's been a total joy i can't thank you enough i had such a lovely time thank you so much for coming on the podcast oh same here i really appreciate it It was lovely huge thanks to kevin now is not the time to panic is published by text publishing and out now it's the story of Frankie, 16, awkward, lonely, and her friendship with equally awkward teenager Zeke. Their secret artistic collaboration sparks a very public panic. I loved this book so much. I adored Frankie, I adored her mother, and I loved Kevin's pitch-perfect evocation of small-town pre-internet 1996. This is the book I've been recommending to everyone this year. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. You can find all the books Kevin mentioned on our page at bookshop.org. There's a book list and a link in the show notes too. Go to acast.com booked for more information. You can find us and follow us on social media at YBooked. Huge thanks to everyone who has given us a five-star review. And if you haven't done it yet and you've been listening for a little while, we'd really appreciate it. It's the best way to help people find this podcast and their new favourite book. We'll be back next week. For now, I leave you with this from Zadie Smith. Nowadays, I know the true reason I read is to feel less alone, to make a connection with a consciousness other than my own. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.